Interactive Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. In the middle of the night on January 28, 1919, a small combined force of Texas Rangers, U.S. soldiers, and local ranchers arrived at the small village of Porvenir in far west Texas. They quickly began kicking in doors and forcing out citizens by gunpoint, finally leading a group of 15 men and boys to the outskirts of town, where they were summarily executed. The rest of the town's scant citizenry fled across the Rio Grande in horror as the bodies of their loved ones, aged from just 16 years old all the way to 72, lay overnight. Finally, the next day, an old woman who I assume didn't fear death came to retrieve them with a horse and cart. As for the actual hamlet of Porvenir, home of about 140 people, the rangers and soldiers returned a few days later and burned it to the ground. According to a local school teacher whose father-in-law was among those killed, quote, the quiet little village of Porvenir with its peaceful farms and happy homes was no more. The rangers made 42 orphans that night. By the way, welcome to Texas History Lessons. My name's Josh, and I'm sitting in for the great and powerful Michael for this episode. As of this recording, at least last I heard, he was hiding in the basement of the Alamo with Jared Flushi and Mondo Salas holding them hostage until they record, and I quote, the greatest GD collaboration album Texas music has ever seen, end quote. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, Michael and I are doing a podcast swap. I'm hosting this episode of Texas History Lessons, and he's hosting the newest episode of my podcast, Wild West Extravaganza, previously known as Bloody Beaver Podcast. Stay tuned for more details. Don't worry, Michael will be back next episode. So back to the story. The massacre I just described there at Port Veneer, among many other atrocities, eventually led to a little something known as the Canales Hearings spearheaded by an investigation conducted by its namesake, Jose Tomas Canales. And these hearings would forever alter the structure and conduct of the legendary law enforcement agency known as the Texas Rangers. But why? What happened that caused all this violence, and what did the Rangers do to find themselves on the receiving end of an investigation? Well, to answer those questions, we'll have to take a little step back in time, start at the very beginning. And it really does go back to the very beginning. Of Texas, at least. You know, we're all familiar with the Texas Revolution and the Alamo and the Battle of San Jacinto and the great influx of migrants to Texas from all over the United States. People like my own ancestors who left Tennessee and came to Texas in the 1840s. But things were a little bit different in the part of Texas that we're going to be covering today. And that area in question is what's known as the Nueces Strip. If you take a map of Texas and you draw you a line from Corpus Christi west to Laredo, and then on down to Brownsville, that little rough triangle is the Nueces Strip, give or take. And unlike the rest of Texas, this area remained relatively unchanged after the Texas Revolution. Even after the Mexican-American War, where the boundary between Texas and Mexico was finally settled, things still kind of stayed business as usual down in the Nueces Strip. There was no huge influx of Americans. You know, those who did trickle in would assimilate oftentimes marrying into Mexican families, learning the language and the culture. The saying goes that down in that area, back in the old days, you might pay your taxes in dollars, but you paid for your groceries in pesos. Now, before we go any further, you're going to hear me tossing around the term Mexican quite a bit on this episode. I do want to clarify that I know that Mexican is not an ethnicity nor a race. 
and that many of the Hispanics in the Nueces Strip were United States citizens. I'm using the term for simplicity, sort of a blanket expression that includes Mexican nationals, Texas Mexicans, or just simply ethnic Mexicans. In the words of Professor John Moran Gonzalez, the director of the Center of Mexican-American Studies, quote, In that area, in those days, not much difference existed for many people between those categories. And by the way, these Mexican people, they were used to doing things their own way, as they had been doing for decades upon decades, with their own elected officials, their own unique culture, etc. All that changed, however, in 1904, when the railroad came to the area connecting Corpus Christi to Brownsville and essentially plugging in the region to the rest of the United States. Cue the gringos! White Americans, Anglos, whatever you want to call them, blue-eyed devils that look a lot like me, they all began moving in. And they brought big money with them. Pretty soon they were buying up all the property and raising property taxes, all that good stuff. I believe this is what fancy people like to call gentrification. But for lack of better words, there was a shift in power. And unlike the previous migrants, this new wave had no desire nor need to assimilate. Before the longtime Mexican citizens of the Nueces Strip knew it, they found it difficult to even afford to live there anymore. And oh boy, trust me when I say this, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Things really got interesting when the Mexican Revolution broke out across the river. Make a long story short, the 34-year reign of Mexican dictator Porfirio Diaz was challenged, which resulted in his resignation and exile and was followed by a quick succession of replacements. Guys like Madero and Huerta and Carranza. There were assassinations, Congress was dissolved, the army seized control, and before long, even the U.S. Marines were patrolling the streets of Veracruz. And in the midst of all this upheaval, you had guys like Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata rising to fame and forming their own little rebel groups, some of whose influence reached beyond the Mexican border and into Texas. Y'all, something like a million people died during this revolution. And as I'm sure you can imagine, there were a whole bunch of refugees, many of whom fled to Texas. In the year 1916 alone, the Hispanic population of El Paso doubled. Okay, so we got a lot going on here. Let's do a real quick recap. Railroad comes to the Nueces Strip, bringing with it a shift in power and an influx of Anglos with big money. This causes a whole lot of tension as they put a financial squeeze on the Mexican population. At the same time, things are getting all kinds of crazy down in old Mexico. People are dying all over the place, and those who survived were fleeing to Texas. And they weren't exactly welcome. To say things were tense would be an understatement. And then, as if all that wasn't enough, a little something came along called the Plan de San Diego. Now, I didn't find out about this until recently. If you haven't heard of it, you're going to want to pay attention. This is going to blow your mind. This entire topic blew my mind, by the way. I still can't believe they didn't teach us any of this in uh, Texas history back in the day. All right, so this Plan de San Diego was concocted sometime in the year 1915. It was drafted in San Diego, not California, San Diego, Texas, about 60 miles west of Corpus Christi. And it was pretty dang radical. It called for an armed takeover of at least a half a dozen American states and the slaughter of all white males over the age of 16. Part of this newly acquired territory would then become an independent Hispanic nation. The other portions would go to black and Native Americans. And if you were Hispanic on either side of the border, you would be expected to join the cause. And even nowadays, nobody knows for certain who was behind the Plan de San Diego. Some say it was Huerta, and others think maybe it was the Mexican government under Carranza, or just one of the many Mexican revolutionary groups that popped up during this time. 
and it was eventually revised to focus solely on the state of Texas as opposed to all those other border states. These weren't no idle threats either. By the summer of 1915, groups of armed insurgents known as seditios began a series of raids on farms and ranches and railroads. Targeted attacks, assassinations, they even had the nerve to attack King Ranch. Needless to say, that particular endeavor was unsuccessful. One just didn't simply attack King Ranch in 1915 with any hopes of victory. But still, these raids, however sporadic, were coordinated and all part of that Plan de San Diego. And I know sometimes when we talk in terms of raids and attacks, it's hard to imagine what things were really like. So I'm the type of guy that likes to take a look at specific examples, like the case of U.S. Army Private Richard Johnson. This poor guy was abducted by Mexican rebels in the town of Progreso and taken across the border. His head was then cut off, placed on a pike, lifeless eyes facing back across the river towards Texas. So hopefully I'm painting a somewhat decent picture for you here. Conditions in the area were almost like a war zone. You had ranchers with their lever-action rifles fighting off Mexican insurgents on the Texas side of the border. Conditions like this certainly couldn't continue, and that's where the Texas Rangers come in. Ah, the Texas Rangers. Is there a more legendary group of law enforcement in all of North America? I don't know, maybe as a Texan, I'm biased, but I'm pretty sure they're the only ones with both a TV show and a baseball team named after them. And growing up in Texas, you cannot help but to hear about the great legends. Guys like John Coffey Hayes, Bigfoot Wallace, Sam Walker, Frank Hamer, the list goes on and on and on. A lot of very tough men on that list, tough men that embodied the ideals of Wild West lawmen. Ideals still seen in modern rangers, even nowadays with their Stetson hats and cowboy boots. And they are kind of an elite form of law enforcement. First of all, there's not a whole lot of them. Only about 160 commissioned Texas Rangers in the entire state. And when there's a position available, they're flooded with hundreds if not thousands of applicants. As such, they can afford to be picky and choose from the creme de la creme, pick of the litter. But not everybody is qualified. You gotta have eight years of law enforcement experience under your belt before the Rangers will even consider you. Also, you gotta have a black belt in Chun Kuk Do. But Josh, what's Chun Kuk Do? I'll tell you what Chun Kuk Do is. Also known as the Chuck Norris system, Chun Kuk Do is a form of martial arts based on Tang Sudo that evolved out of Chuck Norris's desire to continually improve and be the baddest roundhouse kick to the head given SOB to ever don the badge of the Texas Rangers. Okay, so uh, maybe I made that uh, last part up. Kind of. I mean, Texas Rangers are elite, but no, they are not required to attain black belts. There really is a martial art known as the Chun Kuk Do, by the way, and it really is based on the karate style of Mr. Chuck Norris. And Chuck is a Texas Ranger, at least on paper. Norris was bestowed that rare honor by Governor Rick Perry in 2010. And look, I know I'm getting a little bit off track here, but I can't talk about the Texas Rangers without mentioning Chuck Norris. You know, there's no way you live throughout the 90s without watching at least a few episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. Did you know that Chuck Norris can strangle a man to death with a cordless phone? Mm-hmm. Chuck Norris can speak Braille. He's the reason Waldo's hiding. He sleeps with a pillow under his gun. He's the only man alive who can eat Taco Bell without getting diarrhea. And the only time Chuck Norris was wrong was that one time that he thought he made a mistake. All right, let's get back to the story. Y'all got to stop distracting me. The point is the Texas Rangers are a very exclusive law enforcement agency, very professional, but they weren't always. Once upon a time, especially back in the early days, all you had to do to qualify was to have a pulse and be able to sit a saddle 
somewhat handle a firearm, and preferably be in possession of enough courage to put your scalp on the line. Are you willing to ride out to the Staked Plains and bring the fight to the Comanche? Well, you're hired. goes without saying that the Texas Rangers have a long, proud tradition, and much of it is well-deserved. Many a captured child were rescued by the Rangers back in those old days. Many frontier farmers and settlers were protected, and many an outlaw or desperado was put out of commission. These guys were and are legendary. I cannot stress that enough, but even legends often have a dark side. As is the case with almost all of human history, the Texas Rangers aren't without controversy, such as their involvement down there in the Nueces Strip during this episode's timeline. It probably comes as no surprise to anyone that the initial reaction from the Rangers, as far as those Mexican bandits and revolutionaries go, was pretty swift and violent. As to be expected, right? I mean, these were hard men doing a hard job. Unfortunately, a line was crossed that never should have been crossed. Lines got blurred and then completely ignored as Texas Rangers overstepped their bounds and ultimately became the bad guys. At least some of them. Acting as judge, jury, and executioners... Many rangers down in the Nueces Strip completely disregarded not only the rule of law, but the sanctity of human life. As such, get ready to have your mind blown again, as many as 5,000 people may have lost their lives between the years 1910 and 1920. 5,000 people. Let that number sink in. And these were lives lost either directly or indirectly due to the actions of the Texas Rangers. Ushering in a dark chapter of Texas history that's remembered by many as La Matanza, the slaughter. Now, I do have to point out that that number, 5,000, is kind of fluid. Nobody knows exactly how many ethnic Mexicans were killed during this time frame. Nobody but God and probably the devil. Depending on your sources, it could be anywhere from just a few hundred to 5,000. Full disclosure, I did reach out to a couple of experts on this number, and as of this recording, I haven't heard back from them yet. If I do, I will let Michael know, and hopefully he'll give y'all an update. With that in mind, I don't know if that number, 5,000, also includes legitimate bandits and revolutionaries who the Rangers got their hands on, as well as the innocents. Or if that number is just supposed to represent the amount of uh, civilians killed. That said, why is it such a huge range? You know, a few hundred all the way up to 5,000. Well, as far as I can tell, there was a whole bunch of incidents of people getting arrested by the Rangers and never being seen again. And the Texas Rangers weren't exactly keeping a paper trail. As such, what documentation we have is spotty, but it's documentation nonetheless. For instance, a Brownsville attorney by the name of Frank Cushman Pierce began keeping a list of names of victims, victims who he uncovered during his own investigation in just southern Cameron County alone, between 1915 and 1916. The names on this list number 102, and that's just one part of one county in just one year. Remember, La Montanza took place over a decade. And a whole lot of the people that died, died while, air quotes, attempting to escape, if you get my drift. Basically, the rangers would wait till they had their prisoners out in the middle of nowhere, execute them, and leave them laying there just to claim that they were killed while trying to escape. So as far as the hodgepodge of documented deaths go, the best estimate by scholars is that it comes to around 1,000. And that's documented. How many hundreds of deaths or thousands of deaths were never reported. Who knows? And that's where that huge fluctuation between, you know, 1,000, 5,000, whatever, that's where that comes into play. We opened up this episode talking about the massacre at Port Veneer, a purported reprisal in response to the failed attack on King Ranch. Only catch is, 
there's no evidence that those killed in Porvenir had anything to do with that particular raid. The soldiers involved would later say that they just returned fire when fired upon. This has been proven to be a lie. And it wasn't just the killing of innocent people either. The rangers were pretty heavy-handed when it came to doling out justice to legitimate bandits as well. Case in point, in September of 1915, a group of Texas rangers clashed with some Mexican raiders and came out on top, taking about a dozen or so into custody. These captured men, just like many others, never made it to trial. They were promptly strung up and lynched, and their bodies were left to rot at the end of their nooses. A few weeks later, some more legit revolutionaries derailed a passenger train headed north out of Brownsville. The rangers arrived on scene and detained 10 nearby Mexicans. Out of those 10 men, four were shot and four were hung. Their surviving two men were only spared when a local lawman, Cameron County Sheriff W.T. Van, took them from the rangers and placed them in his protective custody. These two men would prove to be innocent, by the way. Yep, turns out they had absolutely nothing to do with derailing that train. And that particular Texas Ranger captain taking the law into his own hands was a guy by the name of Henry Lee Ransom. And unfortunately, this isn't the only time Captain Ransom got a little loosey-goosey with the law. Evidently, he had made a habit of running off Mexicans from their own homes, once claiming to have, quote, drove all the Mexicans from three ranches. Now, the whole Plan de San Diego thing was pretty much squashed by the spring of 1916. But still, the mistreatment of ethnic Mexicans continued. Like when two men were arrested in May of that same year by Texas Ranger Captain J.J. Saunders. Those two men were never seen again. Speaking of Captain Saunders, he once pistol whipped a local by the name of Thomas Hook who had the audacity to petition President Woodrow Wilson for help in the form of federal intervention. And then you had something called the Loyalty Rangers. Oh boy. Now these guys were supposed to monitor anti-war activity, whatever that means. Remember the World War I was going on during this time as well. A lot of stuff going on. And just reading that, you know, monitoring anti-war activity, man, that always sounds a little Orwellian to me. But it looks like mostly these loyalty rangers were just involved with a whole lot of voter fraud down there in the Nueces Strip. They were tampering with elections, intimidating voters. They were also harassing and bullying Mexican-American office holders. Guys like Cameron County Deputy Sheriff Pedro Lerma entering the man's house in the middle of the night when he wasn't there, scaring his wife and daughter. You know, a few moments ago, I mentioned Cameron County Sheriff W.T. Van, the guy that saved those two Mexicans from being killed. Well, he openly broke with the Texas Rangers in 1918 and even arrested three of them for the murder of a Mexican field hand whose bullet-riddled body was found weeks after he'd been taken into custody. So you know things are bad when the law starts going against the law. Finally, we have one of the most notorious cases. The murder of 67-year-old Jesus Bazan and his 48-year-old son-in-law, Antonio Longoria. They were gunned down in September of 1915, shot off their horses by the aforementioned Texas Ranger Captain Ransom and his men. Why? Well, as far as I can tell, out of pure meanness. That and just for being Mexican. Bazan and Longoria weren't criminals of any sort. Far from it. Matter of fact, they were prominent community leaders who themselves were victims of banditry. The whole reason they were even there at that Texas Ranger camp, speaking with Captain Ransom, was to report a horse theft. Now, I can't pretend to know exactly what was said, but from all the accounts I've seen, we do know what happened. As Bazan and Lagoria were leaving, they only made it about 300 yards outside of the camp before Ransom and two civilians hopped in a Model T Ford and followed. As they pulled up beside the two men, one of the passengers reached out the window and shot both men off their horses. Captain Ransom then allegedly 
returned back to the camp and took a nap. As was the case with many of the dead, the bodies of these two innocent, law-abiding citizens were left rotting on the ground for days, their families having fled and the local Hispanics too scared to face punishment if they tried to move them. There was no investigation, at least not at the time. And that's another reason why the official number of people killed by the rangers is so murky. You know, if the locals were too frightened to even claim the bodies of their loved ones, they sure as heck weren't going to go around reporting any murders. And besides, who were they going to report the crimes to? The Texas Rangers? But back to the massacre at Port Veneer. The ranger in charge of that debacle was Captain James Monroe Fox. And there's a good chance many of you listening have seen a picture of Ranger Captain Fox. If not, just go ahead and do a Google image search. Warning, it is pretty graphic. It depicts Fox and two other rangers on horseback, sitting tall and proud in the saddle with their lariats stretched tight around the bodies of four dead Mexicans laying on the ground. Now, these four men were supposedly killed due to that failed raid on King Ranch. Only thing is, they didn't have nothing to do with it. Just like the people at Port Veneer didn't have anything to do with it either. These four men killed by Captain Fox just happened to have the bad misfortune of being nearby when the rangers showed up. That photo, by the way, was turned into a postcard and sold for many, many years. Now, due to all this violence and all these killings, Texas lawmaker Jose Tomas Canales began his investigation. Senor Canales was the only Hispanic legislator in the entire state at this time, by the way. His investigation was what led to the Canales hearings, or the 1919 Texas Ranger hearings, looking into the misconduct of the Texas Rangers down there in the Nueces Strip. So who exactly was Jose Canales? Born in Nueces County, Texas in 1877, Canales would go on to receive his law degree from the University of Michigan in 1899 and eventually settle down in Brownsville where he'd practice law and raise himself a family. He eventually got into politics, serving a total of five times in the Texas House of Representatives between 1905 and 1911 and again between 1917 and 1921. And like I said, it is his investigation that resulted in the so-called Canales hearings. A distinction that, according to him, earned him a visit from famed Texas Ranger Frank Hamer, the man who brought down Bonnie and Clyde. Once again, this is according to Canales, but he said that Hamer warned him to stop collecting cases of Ranger abuse, threatening, quote, if you don't stop that, you're going to get hurt. Hint, hint. Now, this veiled threat caused Adjutant General James Harley to wire Hamer the following, quote, Under governor's orders, you were instructed not to make any threats against the lives of any citizens, especially J.T. Canales, end quote. But according to Canales, Hamer didn't stop. In the days leading up to the legislature's hearing, the legendary ranger reportedly stalked Canales all over Austin. Canales' wife, Ann Anderson Wheeler Canales, and other legislators, such as Linda B. Johnson's father, Sam Johnson, ended up having to escort Canales into the hearing to protect him from assassination attempts. Things got so bad that at one point, Canales took refuge in a local jail cell with the rangers mocking him by offering to provide security. The hearing itself would last a total of two weeks, during which all of these various atrocities, among many others, were brought to light. Day after day, testimony was heard. Even the picture I mentioned of the rangers posing over the bodies of those Mexicans was shown as evidence. Other stuff I haven't even touched on was brought up, like uh, the hiring practices of the Texas Rangers. You know, there was one Texas Ranger who was hired after being twice convicted of murder. There was another Ranger who received his badge after turning over a prisoner to a lynch mob. 
According to Professor of History Monica Munoz Martinez, in an article she wrote published by the Washington Post titled How the Highwaymen Whitewashes Frank Hamer and the Texas Rangers, quote, in the end, Hamer's intimidation failed. Canales continued to lead the investigation, and despite the hostile climate, Anglo-Texans, Mexican-Americans, Mexican nationals, and African-Americans testified. In some cases, witnesses identified rangers sitting in the audience as their abusers. The collection of witnesses showed that ranger violence touched members of all races, genders, and classes in this era. The 1919 investigation is now recognized by historians as a pioneering civil rights effort in police brutality. The hearings left a record of racist ranger violence, as well as a transcript of state authorities' attempts to justify extra-legal violence against racial minorities. End quote. And when everything was all said and done, the 1919 investigation and hearing was both a failure and a success. A failure in the sense that no Texas Rangers or vigilantes or U.S. soldiers were ever convicted. Heck, they weren't even indicted. Nobody, not a single person, was held responsible for those killed in Port Veneer. Or those untold hundreds, if not thousands, who were taken into custody by the Rangers and just never seen again. The closest thing I can see to justice being served is that some Texas Rangers were dismissed or fired. And that's about it. The loyalty Rangers were disbanded altogether, and the number of Texas Rangers was reduced down to just 24. It also caused the Rangers to drastically alter their hiring practices. You know, no more uh, twice-convicted murderers could become Texas Rangers. Okay. Future applicants would have to have experience as law officers. They would have to demonstrate a record of good conduct and obedience to the law in their home counties. And most importantly, it was mandated that they were subject to dismissal if country authorities filed complaints of maltreatment of prisoners. You know, guys like stand-up Sheriff W.T. Van that we mentioned earlier. The Rangers saw another reorganization again in the mid-1930s and were placed under what was then and now called the Department of Public Safety, with an eye towards making them even more professional, better trained, and a much more effective law enforcement organization, as we know them to be today. Still, though, I'm not going to lie, there were some hurdles, you know, especially when it came to desegregation, but I'm going to let Michael handle that topic if and when he gets there. After everything was all said and done, the wanton killing of Mexicans by Texas Rangers there in the Nueces Strip was halted. Thank God. Now, if you'd like to read the entire transcript of the 1919 Ranger investigation, all 1,500 pages, in PDF format on the Texas Rangers official website. And I will link to that in this episode's show notes. Now, before I end this episode, I'd like to point something out. It's hard doing topics like this because I never feel like I'm doing the subject justice. On one hand, I want to shed as much light as I can on these horrible things that the Texas Rangers did. Their actions, during this time period at least, cannot be defended. And this is a topic that almost nobody knows about, me included until very recently. But on the other hand, I also don't want to take a huge dump all over the Texas Rangers. There have been some form of Texas Rangers for almost 200 years, dating all the way back to 1823. That's almost two centuries of a lot of honorable, brave men doing some really honorable, brave things. Unfortunately, you can't have the good without the bad. I think it does us all a disservice to dismiss the bad because it doesn't fit our narratives of good guys in white hats. Now, I say all that just to point out that I don't consider myself to be some sort of a revisionist always trying to poke holes in our hallowed legends. I'm just a Texan who's really interested in our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
And then there's that whole thing about, you know, those who don't remember their history being destined to repeat it or something along those lines. I kind of feel like if we don't remember the victims, who will? As for Jose Canales, he retired from politics at the young age of 43 and became an advocate for Mexican-American rights. He was also the first president of the Latin American Citizens League and ended up writing several history books. And he lived a very long life. Mr. Canales passed away in 1976 at the age of 99 years young and is buried in Brownsville, Texas. And if you would like to hear more about the Canales hearing or the events leading up to it, one source I would definitely like to recommend is a website called refusingtoforget.org. Once again, link in the show notes. In their own words, Refusing to Forget is an award-winning educational nonprofit that hopes to bring public awareness to this often forgotten period. We can also raise the profile of a struggle for justice and civil rights that continues to influence social relationships today. On their website, you can find articles and posts from several sources I mentioned in this episode. Sources like Professor John Moran Gonzalez and Professor Monica Munoz Martinez. Speaking of those two, they both have excellent lectures available on YouTube as well. Good, good stuff. I highly recommend you checking it out. And that, I reckon, is all I've got on the 1919 Canales hearings. Any complaints can be directed to Michael's email, texashistorylessons at gmail.com. And any praise or words of adulation can be directed to me at wildwestextra at gmail.com. Or you can head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button. Make sure you also check out Michael's website as well, texashistorylessons.com. Man, his website is so much cooler than mine. I got to get back on my game, man. Michael's got a recommended reading list, all kinds of Texas history links, even a cool places to visit section. All right, like I said at the beginning, you can all get your Michael fix over at my podcast, Wild West Extravaganza, found wherever you consume audio. Wherever you're listening to this, you can also find that. Each episode of Wild West Extravaganza, I cover a real-life person or event from the Old West era. Gunfighters, lawmen, outlaws, Native Americans, frontiersmen. You get the picture. And this week, Mr. Michael is covering lawman and gunfighter Commodore Perry Owens. I don't know about y'all, but I'm excited to hear it. So as soon as you finish this, make sure you give it a download. Michael, by the way, is just as nice off the microphone as he is on. I've had the pleasure of speaking with him on the phone and trading a ton of emails back and forth and just seems like a really good guy, very intelligent and very authentic. All right, y'all. Thank you very much for having me on, giving me a shot. And thank you, Michael, for letting me on your podcast. Hope I didn't let you down, buddy. Adios. Adios.